Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. It's been more than 40 days since Hamas militants kidnapped some 240 people in Israel. They are grandparents, mothers, fathers, and children. This weekend, the Washington Post reported that U.S. and Qatari officials say they're close to brokering a deal between Israel and Hamas that would allow for the release of some of the hostages in exchange for Israel allowing more aid into Gaza, along with a limited pause in Israel's continued shelling and ground war in Gaza. White House Deputy National Security Advisor John Finer was on CBS's Face the Nation on Sunday. Many areas of of difference uh, that previously existed have been narrowed, uh, that we believe we are closer than we have been uh, to reaching a final agreement, but that on an issue as sensitive as this and as challenging as this, uh, the mantra that nothing is agreed until everything is agreed really does uh, apply, and we do not yet have an agreement in place. As of 10 a.m. Eastern today on Monday, there is still officially no deal in place. Well, Gili Roman is among the Israelis anxiously awaiting the news. He's in Tel Aviv, and his sister, Yardin Roman Gat, is currently being held hostage in Gaza. Gili, welcome to On Point. Thank you for having me. Uh, Gili, I understand right now you're in an Israeli government building anticipating a, a, a meeting that families may be having with the Israeli war cabinet? True. Uh, we are gathering a few of the family, um, I don't know if most, uh, in preparation for the War Cabinet uh, this evening that will host representatives of the families. And I will be joining the meeting uh, soon. And, and did they invite you today? I mean, do you know what the what the meeting is about specifically? Well, uh, this meeting is um, an outcome of a lot of uh, civic pressure on the World Cabinet to meet with the family representative. Um, So uh, after that uh, pressure, important pressure, we were invited to meet uh, with the World Cabinet. And uh, I hope to hear um, at least the outline of what is uh, on the table at the moment and the perspective of our uh, government or the leadership of our government uh, towards the um, possible agreement that we hear about so much on media. I see. So just to be clear, uh, Gilly, is this the first time, as far as you know, that the War Cabinet has met with families of hostages? As a cabinet, yes. Uh, different members of the War Cabinet have met with us uh, in the last uh, couple of days I've met with two of them also as a part of uh, family gatherings on a Saturday evening. My sister met uh, the um, defense minister Gallant yesterday also with a few other families. So as individuals, we have met them uh, recent days, but as the cabinet itself, that will be the first time as far as I know. The first time since October 7th on the day that uh, that your sister and the 240 others were kidnapped. Okay. Yeah. Um, if I may ask, Gilly, can you tell us a little bit about what happened to your sister on October 7th? Yes. Um, my sister on October 7th, actually on October 6th, uh, went to visit uh, the family of her husband alone in Kibbutz Beri. His uh, parents uh, were living there. Uh, it's a uh, kibbutz really nearby uh, the Gaza border. Uh, they went there for a weekend. We just came back from a three weeks uh, family vacation in South Africa. 
Uh, we just came back on the 6th. Uh, so they more, more or less straightly went to the kibbutz, uh, stayed there for the weekend. And on Saturday morning, of course, like all of us, uh, as part of the routine, which I hope we will never call it uh, like that again, of the missile attack, they went into the shelter and not like as we did uh, in Tel Aviv in the center of Israel, that uh, we went out like after an hour, they stayed there for a few hours. So we were in com um, ongoing communication with them. And that stopped around 10 a.m., mm -hmm. And we know that roughly 20 minutes later, they've been kidnapped from the house of uh, Alon's parents. Uh, first, uh, his mother, Kineret, was taken outside of the house by an uh, armed terrorist. They killed her in the streets next to the, next to the house. We know that because they published a video of, uh, of her murder uh, on social media. Uh, they took pride in that, of course. Uh, after they took his sister, uh, Carmel, and she's also held hostage in Gaza at the moment. Mm. And lastly, they took Yerden, my sister, with Alon and their three-year-old daughter, Geffen, my niece, all together inside uh, a vehicle. They put the neighbor at the trunk of the vehicle and start going towards Gaza. And just a few meters before crossing uh, into Gaza, they uh, seized an opportunity when the terrorists uh, took off in order to tackle a certain threat, and they just jumped. Yerden was holding Geffen, uh, her baby in her arms, jumping out of a moving car alongside with her alone. They started running for their lives. Um, they didn't get far before the terrorists noticed them and started chasing them and shooting at them. And at that point, uh, Yarden realized that um, she cannot run fast enough in order to find the hiding spot with Geffen. So she just uh, gave Geffen to Alon so he can do that. And he did. He managed to find a hiding spot. Yarden was, um, um, was uh, stopping um, to try to shelter herself and uh, detain the, the terrorist. And Geffen and Elon were able to find a hiding spot. They hid there for uh, over 12 hours until nightfall. Mm. And only through the night, they started to slowly walk back to the kibbutz. And in the eighth, in the morning, Elon called us uh, to tell us that he and Geffen are safe. But uh, my sister was last found in the um, part where they diverted. So, so she was she was taken hostage and taken in to yeah, Gaza. Um, what we have done after I heard that, I immediately went to this area, and for the whole first week of the war, I just conducted uh, searches with the army forces to try to locate her if she's hiding somewhere inside of Israel. Uh, but uh, the trackers conclude by the footsteps that she was uh, mm -hmm. taken again by the terrorists, and now she's a she's a hostage in Gaza. Okay. What has the past six weeks been like for you and your family? I would say it's an ongoing agony. Um, obviously, also a roller coaster. Uh, you just, uh, we are just talking now in the midst of another cycle of a possible agreement. Maybe we'll see some releases. 
uh, we under severe manipulations, uh, psychological manipulations by uh, by Hamas. And it's not the first time. Uh, I know that for many people, the 7th of October is the day uh, of terror against Israel. But for us and for my sister and for many other hostages and families, we are still under terror. We are still under attack. And uh, this hasn't stopped even for one minute uh, since, the, since the day they have been taken. Mm. Um, so... We sometimes feel helpless, but we try to be completely hopeful and be determined in our efforts to uh, <clears throat> vocalize the need for their return inside Israel and outside Israel, like what we are doing right now, which is crucial for me to deliver this message also to the American people. Right. You know, uh, as you well know, under recent uh, in recent days, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has been questioned more vigorously about why the hostage has, hostages have not been brought home yet. And in one interview, he said that it, the priorities are two. One, the destruction of Hamas. Two, bringing the hostages home. I presume in that order. I mean, what do you make of the Israeli government's and military's efforts as they're being carried out in Gaza so far? Yeah. So first of all, I do not accept this order. Uh, and obviously I will um, say it and vocalize it also today in the War Cabinet. I think it's not the current order. Uh, and we've heard it from other cabinet members in, the, in recent days. Uh, the hostage issue is an urgent issue, and the issue of uh, deterring and dismantling Hamas is a crucial issue, but it's a long-term uh, battle that uh, will not be settled in the upcoming days. So I think it's clear that uh, bringing back the hostages who are still alive and can be saved is more urgent uh, than the other crucial uh, goal of the war. And um, I think he also need to say it. I think it, he can. And um, what I understand from the military efforts that so far uh, they have been serving both goals because we understood in the first two weeks that uh, Hamas is stalling and trying to manipulate Israel into um, hold back and not getting into, uh, into Gaza in the promise they might uh, bring hostages back and maybe in very small quantities. I think that it was a smart step to create a, a calculative and gradual um, ground operation. And we see the outcome. It's very sad that this is a situation that only military force pushed uh, the leadership of uh, Hamas to seriously negotiate and get us into this point that they are willingly um, um, considering to release hostages for uh, a humanitarian pause. Mm. Otherwise, I think that uh, that would not be on the table for a long, long time. Mm. Well, uh, Gili, if I may ask you one more question uh, about Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Do you see him as, as holding any responsibility for the fact that it's been this long and the hostages are not yet home? It's a it's a hard question to answer because it's a two sides um, problem. Uh, it's not that if he would be willing to necessarily give everything, there was somebody else in the other side that was willing 
to negotiate and willing to uh, bring the hostages back. That was not the case as, as far as I understand that. Um, at least not in the in most of the of the time frame that we are talking about. So of course he is responsible. He is the prime minister. He, he in the in the end every outcome is his responsibility. But I cannot hold him uh, solely responsible for this. Mm. We are dealing with a very vicious, unexpected um, uh, organization with malicious intentions. Right. So it's hard to say that it's also only the Israeli side's mm. fault. Mm. Well, and meanwhile, every single day that passes is another day without your sister home yet. But Gili Roman, currently in Tel Aviv, uh, awaiting a meeting of the Israeli war cabinet. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll be back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash OnPoint. That's Indeed.com slash OnPoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And as news continues to bubble about the United States and Qatar being close, or so they say, to a possible deal between Israel and Hamas that would allow for the release of some of the 240 hostages Hamas took on October 7th, we're trying to understand what these past six weeks have been like for family members awaiting the return, if ever, of their loved ones from Gaza. And we're also trying to look more deeply at why Hamas took hostages to begin with on October 7th. Now, you heard a little earlier uh, Gili Roman, the brother of a hostage right now, talking about whether or not he holds Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu responsible thus far for the long, long delay before any action seemingly, or any forward action seemingly, in the release of hostages. Many Israelis, in fact, over the past several weeks, have taken to the streets to protest Netanyahu's handling of the hostage situation. They've even protested outside of Netanyahu's residence. So uh, CNN's Dana Bash asked Netanyahu about the demonstrations on November 12th, and here's how the prime minister responded. It's understandable. They're under tremendous distress. They're under just torture. Uh, you can imagine that. You have your... your your father, your, your, your husband, your son, your daughter, taken by these savages. Are you doing uh, enough? And held it. Uh, you know, we're doing everything we can around the clock, and I can't, you know, talk about it. I personally met with uh, the hostage uh, families, uh, families of hostages several times, and it it's just tears your heart out. 
But yes, we're doing uh, everything and many things that I can't say here, obviously. But this is one of our two uh, war goals. I mean, one is to destroy Hamas and the second is to bring back our hostages. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on November 12th on CNN. Well, Udi Gorin's cousin, Tal Hamani, has been missing since October 7th. Udi says Tal confronted members of Hamas as they attacked his kibbutz. We're not sure what happened to him yet. His body hasn't been recovered. He wasn't in any of the Israeli hospitals, and his phone was traced to Gaza. So that leads us to believe that he's over there being held hostage at the moment. Now, we spoke with Udi late last week, and he says that on the day of the Hamas attack, it took Israeli defense forces hours after Hamas began its attack before the IDF arrived at his cousin's kibbutz. And that has led him to feeling a profound sense of betrayal. It's inconceivable to Israelis that the military did not arrive, that the military was not there to protect the border that we were hit so hard the the magnitude, the catastrophe of the loss of faith in the government and the government's ability to defend its citizens is shattering. This is something that's going to take a very, very long time to recover from. A few minutes ago, you heard Gili Roman, whose sister is currently being held hostage in Gaza. You heard Gili say that he holds Prime Minister Netanyahu partially responsible, but not entirely. Now, Udi Gorin feels much more strongly about this. He is adamant that Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu should resign because of the security failures. He will never, ever resign on his own. He has been building up the narrative that he is not responsible. It would be up to us, the Israeli civilians, to make sure that he does take responsibility and that he does resign. Because if he should resign at the end of the war, that actually means that he would make sure the war will never end. Udi's been very frustrated with other members of the Israeli government as well, especially when it comes to the hostages. It's inconceivable to me that any government member is actually asleep at night, is actually doing anything aside from knocking on Netanyahu's door every single day and asking them, are you bringing them back home today? Udi wants that to happen more than anything else. And he says it's for a very important reason, because bringing back the hostages would, of course, be a huge weight lifted off of his shoulders, off of his whole family's shoulders, and of course, especially his cousin, who is still in Gaza. But he says it's equally important to lift that weight off of the entire Israeli nation. For the country of Israel, for the people of Israel, Bringing the hostages back would be this huge, not only sigh of relief, would be this huge ray of light in this incredibly dark period that we're living through. What Israel needs now is hope in order to build its strength and be able to move forward. That's Udi Gorin. His cousin is currently being held hostage in Gaza. Well, let's turn now to Danny Gilbert, assistant professor of political science at Northwestern University. Her research explores the causes and consequences of hostage-taking in international security. Professor Gilbert, welcome to you. 
Thank you so much for having me. So given the uh, the massive military response that Israel has been meeting out upon basically the entire Gaza Strip for six weeks, the mm-hmm. Palestinian casualties, et cetera, that is not, that's not a surprise, right? Because Israel was so profoundly attacked on October 7th. But it makes me wonder, what was Hamas thinking in taking Israelis hostage? Because I, I don't see it as having gained Hamas anything. So what could their possible motives have been? That's a great question, Magna, and it remains to be seen precisely what their motives were, but at least two come to mind. The first is that Hamas intends to use the hostages as leverage. The group has in past attacks kidnapped Israelis and traded them for Palestinians imprisoned in Israeli jails. So it's entirely possible that the negotiations we're now hearing about between the Israeli government and Hamas with Qatar as an intermediary are part of the plan of October 7th, that the goal is to free Palestinians from Israeli jails. But the other option is to think of the hostages as human shields. In the early days after October 7th, Hamas actually said that they would start executing hostages and sharing the videos of those executions for every IDF missile strike that hit without warning. To date, we haven't seen that, thank God, but it's entirely possible that holding on to hundreds of Israelis and other foreigners might have altered the Israeli military's incursion into Gaza, might have delayed it or changed what the IDF has been willing to do. Mm. Okay, so the first possible reason about... uh essentially hostage or prisoner exchanges here. Mm -hmm. The past times where Hamas has taken hostages, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I can remember only uh, hostages that were members of the Israeli military. And this time we have civilians and hundreds of them. Um, Isn't there a, a difference there? Do you think Israel, the Israeli government, would be willing to do um, an exchange uh, or do they fear that in doing so, it would only, you know, the constant uh, concern in hostage negotiations, it just encourages people to try again to take more hostages later? Yeah, I think that the scope and scale of the October 7th attacks are truly unlike anything we've ever seen, and especially from Hamas, who in the past has kidnapped one, two, you know, small handfuls of Israelis and typically soldiers to use them for exchange. The most famous case of a Hamas kidnapping that was used in this way was when Hamas kidnapped Israeli soldier Gilad Shalit. Mm -hmm. They held him for more than five years and ultimately exchanged him for 1,027 Palestinian prisoners who were held in Israeli jails. And so... They've seen in the past that the Israeli government is willing to negotiate. In fact, one of the architects of the October 7th attacks was someone who was released uh, as part of that Gilad Shalit prisoner exchange. Uh And so any time we see one of these negotiations, it's often to release someone uh, who was imprisoned in the last hostage taking. And so the cycle continues. So... Say that again, that one of the architects of the October 7th attack uh, by Hamas was part of that prisoner exchange back in, two, when, when, when was that, 2000? 2011. 2011. Oh, right, mm-hmm. because Shalit was actually held by Hamas for several years. Okay. 
first of all, I presume that, uh, I mean, does w- would that make Israel far more cautious now uh, to in agreeing to any potential prisoner exchange for the hostages? Well, governments face a policy and a moral dilemma anytime they are thinking about these prisoner swaps, which is that they are thinking about what they can do in the moment to bring home their citizens who are currently held hostage, wrongfully detained, um, in, in this case, hidden in tunnels throughout Gaza, and how that might make things more risky or more dangerous for the potential hostages of the future. And so they have to weigh things that might immediately be really effective in bringing hostages home, like a prisoner swap, against incentivizing this violence going forward. Has, looking just outside of uh, Israel and Gaza for just a moment, Mm -hmm. have there been other examples of when hostage-taking has been an effective political tool or or weapon. Yes. So it's uh, one of the oldest crimes and forms of violence that we can think of. Hostage-taking is as old as the written word. And armed groups and governments and perpetrators have used it in conflicts throughout history. And they use it because it works. It is really incredibly effective for weaker perpetrators in the short term to coerce massive concessions from adversaries, to change their adversaries' policies, to embarrass target governments, and to help them with their own recruitment. What's less clear is whether hostage-taking is effective longer term. And so what happens after those concessions or negotiations are complete? What uh, how how effective are those groups longer term after they have wrapped up their hostage taking? Mm. I think you've written though that um, this incident. I mean, I know that's too mild a word. I acknowledge that, but uh, is different in some way. Mm-hmm. Tell me more. Sure. So there are a few things about this particular hostage taking that make it not only unprecedented, but that contribute to how impossible it is for the targets of the kidnapping, for their families, for their governments uh, to 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 deal with this brutality and to figure out what comes next. So one of the things that's really different about this particular hostage taking are the kinds of people who were held hostage. So as we were discussing a few minutes ago, Hamas typically kidnaps soldiers or otherwise able-bodied Israeli adults. But this hostage taking included children and babies and senior citizens, really vulnerable individuals. And it's really rare for armed groups to kidnap such vulnerable individuals, partly because they have to make sure that if they want concessions, they have to keep their hostages alive Mm -hmm. in captivity. And it's really difficult to keep babies alive in captivity. Does it concern you, though, then that we've seen, what, almost none of the typical uh, signs of life? Uh, We've seen maybe a video or two, but not many more than that. Yeah, I'm... I'm, I'm waiting to see more of those videos, and, and I say that with a lot of caution because to see images or videos, those proofs of life of hostages, uh, might also mean seeing some uh, evidence of extreme brutality that, mm-hmm. that I, don't, I don't think anyone wants to see that either. But it's entirely possible that 
the hostages are still alive and that we haven't seen any of that evidence because of how difficult it is to get communications out of Gaza. Uh, All evidence and reporting of the ongoing negotiations suggests that just the, the sheer fact of Hamas operating in tunnels and the ongoing IDF incursion makes it quite difficult to get messages from Hamas's leaders to the negotiators who are trying to resolve this crisis. And that suggests that getting any message, even a proof of life video, might be really difficult. Yeah. Do you know, um, in your paper, you point out uh, that uh, Israel has been through many hostage crises, right? And and mm-hmm. I was suddenly remembering how you pointed out in your paper at the 1972 Olympic Games. Uh, how many, there was just, what, uh, 10, 9, 10 Israeli athletes that were taken, mm-hmm. taken hostage then. Can you just remind us briefly what the outcome of that was? Sure. So at the Munich Olympics in 1972, a Palestinian militant organization infiltrated the Olympic Village and took all of the Israelis hostage. There were ongoing negotiations between the Israeli government and the German government about how to react, how to try to rescue the hostages and and bring them home. The Israeli government in the moment uh, refused to negotiate, said they would not make concessions to the hostage takers. And German security forces forces tried to rescue the hostage and the hostages and that rescue mission was was a total disaster all of the hostages were killed and uh, that's actually quite common in hostage mm. recovery missions they represent the most dangerous time in captivity for the hostages themselves. Uh, Some of the hostage takers died as well, and uh, those that didn't uh, were arrested and then later freed in concessions of a later hostage taking. So uh, that's another example of of how that cycle of hostage negotiations uh, can sometimes keep releasing uh, former hostage takers. So then does that give some merit to what Prime Minister Netanyahu said in the in the clip that we played a little bit earlier that the, lo- the locations in which the uh, hostages may be now in Gaza, no matter where it is, we, we're dealing with a very well, densely populated uh, uh, a- area of land. And so any rescue operation is that much more complicated. But I'm still trying to balance that in my head against the, fa- the fact that, uh, you know, the Israeli military has uh, has laid waste to much of Gaza. So does that mm-hmm. help them in, in, in securing or, or finding the hostages or not? Oh, Magna, it's such a difficult thing to think about because, uh, you know, as I mentioned, hostage recovery missions represent the most dangerous time in captivity for hostages. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is the time when hostages are most likely to die. Either they're killed inadvertently in the crossfire of a rescue or uh, sometimes hostage takers, uh, if they hear or think that recovery forces are coming, they take that opportunity to execute their captives. And so governments that are thinking about launching hostage recovery missions need to gather really accurate timely intelligence about where the hostages are being held, how they're being guarded, um, and what the situation might be for the recovery officers trying to go in and save them. Well, Danny Gilbert is with us today. She's an assistant professor of political science at Northwestern University, and her research explores the causes and consequences of hostage-taking in international security. We'll have much more when we come back. This is On Point. 
did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And as reports of talks or discussions to potentially potentially bring back some of the hostages taken out of Israel on October 7th by Hamas, as reports of those uh, talks say there may be close to a deal, we're talking with Danny Gilbert, assistant professor of political science at Northwestern University. And her research explores the causes and consequences of hostage-taking in international security. Uh, Professor Gilbert, my mind keeps coming back to the why. And, and, and just because, mm-hmm. because as, you're descri- as you described earlier, this is, this is a shocking escalation in Hamas's uh, history of, of taking hostages. Uh, and right now, who's paying the price for that? It's, the, of course, the hostages themselves, their families, mm-hmm. and two million Palestinians in Gaza. And so, uh, you know, Hamas isn't necessarily paying the price itself or whomever identifies as as being a member of Hamas. This just seems to be such a spectacularly uh, lopsided cost benefit that all of that in order to uh, to maybe encourage Israel to a to a prisoner swap. I I suppose what I'm saying is it just it doesn't make any sense in my mind. But Mm -hmm. You've, over the course of your research, you've interviewed many people who were hostage takers or kidnappers, mm-hmm. right? Can mm-hmm. you explain to me what you learned about the mindset or strategies of those people that might help explain what we saw on October 7th? Sure. So I've, uh, as you mentioned, I've spent a bunch of time in Colombia, actually, interviewing dozens of former kidnappers from the Colombian Civil War. And the individual hostage takers are not committing hostage taking for their own personal benefit, but because it comes as an order through their organization because they are following in the hierarchy of uh, the the army effectively that they believe that they are a part of. And so uh, for the kidnappings of October 7th, demonstrate a lot of the ways that Hamas was an organization that planned and prepared for hostage taking, that in the documents that have emerged with the IDF's incursion into Gaza, that they have picked up planning documents from Hamas that talk about the importance of capturing hostages. Uh, Some of the reporting that's come out from hostages who have been released indicate that there were role specialization within the organization, that they had food and resources that had been hidden away in preparation for holding the hostages. So, So they were prepared for this. But it's also possible that they had no idea of 
I say this in quotation marks, the amount of success that that they would have in taking Mm. those hostages. Uh, It seems to me that they took far more hostages than they might have meant to, and that there's also a a handful of other organizations and unaffiliated individuals who kidnapped Israelis as well. So it's actually not just Hamas holding hostages right now, but another militant organization, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, as well as unaffiliated uh, individuals and families in Gaza who are holding Israelis captive. And so... It's almost as if the hostage-taking really got out of their control and that they've been adapting ever since. I see. That's a very, very important point because then it also raises the complications in who do you do the negotiations with? How? Who do you know who's being who was taken ho- or how do you know who was being taken hostage by whom? Okay. Mm-hmm. With that in mind, there's something that you wrote which uh, I'll admit I did not know. And that was uh, in, again, in 1976, when militants hijacked an, an Air France flight that was going from Tel Aviv to Paris. The Israeli government eventually launched uh, its own rescue mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the rescue mission successfully rescued 102 of 105 hostages. I'm reading this from your paper. Killed all seven hijackers. One of the operation's commanders, Yonatan Netanyahu, was the sole Israeli service member to die in that operation. Mm-hmm. And he's the older brother of current Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. I've only got a couple minutes left with you, Professor Gilbert. With that in mind and all the other nuances and complications that you've laid out, you know, if you were in that war cabinet, how would you advise them right now about you know, what to do to bring the hostages home. Oh, my God. Well, it's uh, it's incredibly clear to me from looking at past hostage takings, uh, with the exception of the raid on Entebbe that you just mentioned, that the best way to bring hostages home is to pursue negotiations, to make concessions. Um, that is guaranteed the best way to to bring hostages home alive. But it comes with all of those other problems that you've mentioned. It strengthens Hamas. It uh, has the potential to incentivize future hostage taking. And so the the government is facing something quite difficult um, if they believe that these hostages are still alive because they they are experiencing every day the suffering and the trauma, uh, not only of, of the hostages, but but of their families. And so typically what I would say is make those concessions today, uh, pursue those negotiations, bring home who you can, um, and then leave mm. punishment for another day. Okay. Uh, that doesn't seem like the path that uh, Israel is taking right now. And you also write that their past approaches to hostage recovery have not been particularly helpful in this crisis. What do you mean by that, Magna? Well, so what should they do differently than oh, what they've done in the past? Sure, I understand. So I think the uh, the raid on Entebbe, that 1976 hostage mission, um, taught some big lessons to Prime Minister Netanyahu, not only that it was his brother who, who died in that operation, which... Uh, surely has been a, a, an incredibly informative uh, moment in in his life that sh- has shaped Prime Minister Netanyahu's politics, but that it was this rare example of a cinematic, incredibly successful hostage recovery mission mm-hmm. that, that leaves a government um, confident, probably, that 
that hostage recovery using force remains a viable option. I see. Well, Danny Gilbert, assistant professor of political science at Northwestern University, her research explores the causes and consequences of hostage-taking in international security. Professor Gilbert, it has been very eye-opening and, and, uh, and helpful to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, as we've been hearing, of course, over the past six weeks and today as well, Israelis desperately want the hostages safely returned. To understand how deeply the plight of political hostages can consume the attention of entire nation, all we have to do is look back 44 years to the end of the Carter administration. On November 4th, 1979, when students in the line of the imam, a young Iranian militant group, invaded the U.S. embassy in Tehran, they took 52 Americans hostage, and network news covered the crisis every single night for 444 days. From ABC in New York, this is World News Tonight, Sunday, with Sam Donaldson. Good evening. The U.S. Embassy in Tehran has been invaded and occupied by Iranian students. The Americans inside have been taken prisoner. And My name is Barry Rosen. I was the U.S. press attaché at the embassy. Some reports say as many as 90 Americans may be involved. Others say as few as 35. My office was overtaken almost immediately. The doors were blown open. About 15 to 20 young thugs came through. They tied me up and I said, um, can you just give me one second? I want to say goodbye to the people in my office. Uh, I uh, turned around and... My staff and I, we looked at each other and uh, I said, Chod uh, Hafez, goodbye. And they blindfolded me and marched me out of my office. This morning, for the first time since the hostages were put under lock and key, one of the captives, blindfolded, was brought out into the open. This is Harry Rosen, the embassy's press attaché. He was turned to face reporters and cameramen and several hundred Iranian demonstrators outside the embassy's gates. Yankee, go home, they cried. I was punched in the stomach, knocked down, and uh, for that evening, I slept uh, with uh, the cords of the curtains tying my feet and my hands. One thing occurred that was very important, and there was a message from Ayatollah Khomeini on the radio, and every one of the hostage takers were listening to it. Ayatollah Khomeini commended the students for taking over the embassy. Once that happened, more than anything else, determined the fact that I and my colleagues were going to stay there for a long time. In the name of God, the most merciful and gracious, the 35 million population of Iran want this, the Shah, returned. And unless he is returned, the hostages will not be freed. I was frightened. He opened up cans of okra and force-fed us okra. 
between two or four of us were held in these, I call them cells. In each of these cells, there was a guard and the guard commanded that we could not speak to each other, even though we were in the same cell together. Days were very, very long. And we heard, it seemed like the entire city of Tehran screaming, Marg Bar Amrika. Death to America, death to America. They were standing in front of the embassy, chanting day in and day out. I would say in... Uh, December of uh, 1979, I was put into a van and driven to the very opulent place. The floor was marble. Then the next morning, I, there was a knocking on the door, and uh, I was told that I had to uh, sign a statement that I was a spy and plotter against the Islamic Republic of Iran. The next morning, he came back with somebody with an automatic weapon in his hand. And I was marched down stairs and they ripped off my blindfold. I was marching past a, a gauntlet of guards dressed in black with weapons in their hands. And straight ahead, there was a desk young man sitting in a chair at the desk. And he said to me, If you don't sign, we will shoot you. And he said, I'm going to give you 10 seconds to make a decision. And uh, I eventually put my, my signature to the, uh, to the confession that I was a spy. That was a very demeaning and I was, any ideals I had were thrown out the window. And, and so I, I was uh, marched upstairs back into that room and I lied there uh, for a while. And, uh, and there I saw a bunch of red ants on the floor and started to play with them and then fell asleep. There's also one, one major incident, and this is not really public, and never has really been public, but it's 44 years, and I think, you know, it should be. And that is one of our colleagues uh, was telling his guard who was in each cell, the positions that we held. So to a large degree, we were getting um, held hostage by one of our own people too, in a certain sense, because he outed all of us. This came out through little messages that we would leave in one of the corners of the uh, bathroom. And many of us later on swore to each other we were going to kill him. But of course, that didn't happen. But the idea of turning on, on all of us is something that still disgusts me. Um, but. 
United States government did nothing about it. I think the reason why it never really got out into the public arena was because I think we came back, quote unquote, as heroes. And I don't think the American public wanted to hear that we were not, quote, all heroes. Now, day one. Day one of Ronald Reagan's presidency and day one of freedom for 52 Americans. The new president had not been in office an hour when the former hostages became free men and women again. Just looking at them, they appear to have momentarily at least lost complete touch with reality. I'm, I'm quite sure they, they cannot conceive that they are free now. Their faces are blank, their eyes are glazed. It's, 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 it's a stunning emotional experience. These people who are being held in Gaza are, are my brothers and sisters in many ways. Captivity has actually been part of my genetic makeup now for the last 44 years. That's why I think you have to be hopeful. That is most important in your mind, to be as hopeful as you possibly can be and try to meditate on that and the idea that you will one day see your family, your loved ones again. Continue with that in mind. It's too important to let go. Barry Rosen. He's former press attaché at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. He was one of 52 Americans held for 444 days during the Iran hostage crisis from November 4, 1979 to January 20, 1981. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. <laughs> 